Hi, I'm Aaron Alney. The multiple tragedies of the coronavirus pandemic are suddenly all around us. The ongoing destruction caused by climate change is more evident by the day. So is this a good time to talk about being happy? Cassie Mogilner-Holmes says there is no better time. She's a professor at UCLA's Anderson School of Management. Her work has appeared in scholarly journals and in the popular press many, many times. She has many awards from prestigious organizations all over the country for both research and teaching the science of happiness. She is happily sheltering at home today, as am I, for this edition of UCLA's Anderson podcast, How the World Works. Hi, Cassie. Good morning. You say you teach happiness. I want to say, teach me, teach me. (laughs) I'm ready. This is the time. And um, as you mentioned, there might be this thought that with so much awfulness going on with the economy and folks getting sick and being worried about loved ones getting sick, that happiness might seem a little indulgent, but it is not. Now it is more important than ever that we as individuals focus on our personal emotional well-being. Research has shown that feeling happy and being happy has really positive consequences in our domains in life. It keeps us motivated, it keeps us creative, it keeps us adaptive in our problem solving, which is so important these days as we're figuring through how to do all of this, how to be productive, quarantined in our homes, how to not get overwhelmed by the uncertainty that is there and how to not get overwhelmed by the news. Um, And so now more than ever, it's important to understand how to make us feel okay such that we get through the day and not only get through the day, but we get through the day confidently. We get through the day kindly. So happiness increases our likelihood of being nice, willing to help out others. And it gets us through the day sort of healthfully, such that on the other side of this crisis, we are still standing and we are not only sort of standing ourselves, but we have that strength to lead our organizations, help out our friends and family that need us and to support our communities. So you've made happiness a science. What's the evidence and how do you measure it? Yeah, so we measure happiness simply by asking people because what happiness is, it is how you are feeling in the moment as well as your evaluation of your life as satisfying and positive. And so the only way you can assess that is by asking the person, how satisfied are you with life overall? In terms of the science of happiness, what we do is we're looking at what are correlates of that. So what is associated um, with people reporting that they feel better and that they feel greater life satisfaction? And then also the part that I'm really interested in are what are some interventions, some sort of treatments so that we can assess in an experimental context and establish causality that if you're in this condition, then you are statistically significantly more likely to report being happy than the other. And then from understanding what are those interventions, we can educate ourselves and I can educate my students about what we should be doing, how we should be thinking so that we feel greater happiness 
in our day-to-day life and also more satisfied with our life overall. Are you suggesting that we can choose to be happy? Yes. (laughs) There are aspects of our happiness that we can't choose. So if you're thinking about some of the determinants, our natural disposition. So we're born a naturally glass half full type person or someone who sees the negatives in situations. So there is our set point, our natural disposition. So that does influence how happy we feel. But the reason that it does is because it influences how we adapt to and react to life circumstances. So circumstances being like income level, marital status, parental status, But then there's the chunk that I'm most interested in, which is what we think about and what we do in our day to day. And some of these things, actually, many of them mimic what naturally happy people, how they think and what they do. Um, But it's important to identify what those things are so that if you're someone who has more negative natural disposition, then you can actually train yourself and practice these techniques to enjoy greater positivity in your life overall, sort of seeing the positive in situations so that you become more resilient and adaptive and motivated and get through it. But then it's also important for those of us who who naturally have a positive disposition because life is pretty crummy sometimes, right? I mean, we are all experiencing this now. This COVID-19 crisis is affecting all of us. And it is negative. I mean, we are stuck at home. Again, we are scared about the economy. Our own financial futures are many, many people have lost their jobs. Many, many people have lost loved ones. And so given that there are necessarily going to be some downs in life and bad circumstances, then we can go to and pull from those tools to get us back on track. So yes, there are definitely things we can do, and sort of learning ways of thinking that can increase how positive we feel in the moment and about life overall. Do you have to start out by trying to determine what your natural disposition is and whether you're inclined to be positive or inclined to be negative, or do you sort of find that out as you go along? I think that you find that out as you go along. And actually, I don't know how to use this to establish one's set point, because my hope is that through the research that we all sort of learn how to be a little better. And what I wouldn't want is for someone to be like, oh, I'm an unhappy person, so that's that, and I'm just going to wallow in my unhappiness. Um, Because we can influence how happy we feel, and so I want those folks, instead of wallowing, to assume the sense of control and confidence that they can enjoy life a little more. On the other hand, I can certainly think, I, I certainly think you can tell other people and, and whether they are <laughs> inclined to be negative or positive or not. But sometimes that turns out really soon. Early on in your relationship, you find out. Yes, you do. And actually, as you asked earlier, how do we assess how happy people are? Or can you actually measure it? And my answer is that you ask people, but there's also work that um, shows that is a reliable measure because when you put that up to other measures like 
asking other people around you, know, how happy is this person? They are highly correlated. So people are aware of how happy the individual feels. Yes. And then there's other correlates. You can also see actually um, brain activity that is associated with subjective reports of happiness. And then you also see sort of circumstantial environmental factors that you would assume to be associated with greater happiness. And indeed they are. So that's why I feel confident in, in the measurement in terms of reliability, but also just because what it means of being happy and feeling happy is just that. And so I think that we can very easily go and just ask folks. I really want to get to those interventions. And I think that's what you want to talk about too. But you mentioned brain activity. Is this something you can actually tell uh, by uh, looking into people's brains with uh, modern equipment, uh, MRIs and whatnot? That is definitely outside of the scope of my research. But yes, there is work that looks at brain activity. And what they show is that it is oftentimes closely associated with what people report that they're feeling. But again, that's outside of my sort of realm of research. Well, let's get to your research because it has been so popular, so important to, to uh, so many people, I think, uh, uh, in so many ways as uh, all of your uh, articles and uh, and the various awards that and your professorship and whatnot at both Wharton and UCLA Anderson would suggest. So start out, tell us what what what's what's a what are a couple of interventions that we could uh, could start doing. My research focuses on how we should think about and spend our time. We'll talk about the ones that I actually think are most relevant to the current um, state of affairs, how we are existing these days. One of the big things is that we feel a lot of anxiety. And anxiety is a future-focused emotion that comes from not understanding there's uncertainty in the world. So you don't feel like you have control over the future as well as you feel fearful of the future. And so we're feeling a lot of that. Our minds are racing. And one way we can regain a sense of control is by establishing structure in how we spend our time during our days. So it's very important these days to create a schedule that you are in control of, and it's not being reactive, it's being proactive. And so this includes in the morning, getting up, out of bed, showered, Ideally, you get some exercise in there. Research shows that just 30 minutes of exercise a day increases mood, decreases stress and anxiety, and increases cognitive functioning. And so exercise is important. It's amazing that I would have to be like, oh, you, <laughs> you should get out of bed and shower. But the fact that that is under question because we can't leave our house, but it is so important to do so. Establish where in your home you are going to be doing work. Ideally, I know that everyone can't close their doors, but if you can, and that is communicating when you sit down both to yourself as well as those around you, that it is work time. And again, in terms of being proactive as opposed to reactive and how we spend our time, you want to make sure that you establish what is the output you need at the end of the day to feel a sense of accomplishment because we do need to feel a sense of accomplishment. And of course, we probably need to shift what our threshold is of what we expect ourselves to produce by the end of the day, but establish what I need to get done, create that space, having exercise so that you have that clear, confident, self-effective 
mind. And then also in terms of structuring, it's just as important that at the end of the day, you leave work, so to speak, because since our work and our personal time is in the same space, we really have to work to protect those from each other. And so I have researched with my colleagues here at Anderson, Colin West and Sanford DeVoe, where we are showing the emotional importance of treating our breaks and our weekends for what they are, and that is a true break. And a place where you find that people really truly feel like they're getting a break from the grind of day-to-day is through vacations. And what we did was we analyzed Gallup data, so looking at hundreds of thousands of Americans, actually. And what we identified was that those who prioritize time for vacation experience greater happiness in their day-to-day, as well as greater life satisfaction. And so, of course, we can't go on vacations right now. We can't get on an airplane, nor can we actually go very far from our house. So how do we get the sort of break the benefits of vacation without actually going on vacation? And what our work shows is that it's actually more about a mindset than really going anywhere. So what we did is we conducted a couple experiments, which were quite simple, but it shows a very clean and clear intervention uh, to improve our well-being. We're leading into a regular weekend. This was conducted among employed Americans, and we gave them a simple set of instructions going into the weekend. We randomly assigned half of them. We told them, treat this weekend like a vacation. That is, to the extent possible, behave in ways as though it were vacation. And then we had a control condition. And those folks, we said, treat this weekend like a regular weekend, behave in ways as though it was a regular weekend. And then they could interpret that however they chose. But then on Monday, we reconnected with them and we measured their happiness and asked them how they felt over the course of the weekend. And we also asked them what they did as in framing their weekend, this time off, like a vacation, led them to be happier when they returned to work on Monday than those who treated it like a regular weekend. And while we did see some shifts in behavior, so those in the vacation condition worked a little less, they ate a little more, but that didn't influence subsequent happiness. What did influence subsequent happiness was their mindset. So the vacationer, so to speak, they were more engaged over the course of the weekend in whatever activity it was, that it seemed like they sort of disconnected from the grind of work life and really settled down and connected with themselves, what they were doing, the people that they were with. And so it's this mindset that translated into greater enjoyment over the course of the weekend and greater happiness afterwards. And why that's so important here is because Again, it's mindset. So at the end of the workday during the week, but also at the end of the work week on Friday, we have to sort of turn off the stresses, the demands of work life so that we can settle into ourselves, relax, do what we enjoy, and then we'll feel more rejuvenated and happy getting back online on Monday. So what I hear you saying then is that uh, even though circumstances are entirely different and you're not where you normally are, you can, by structuring your time, 
by, as you said, uh, controlling it and taking a proactive attitude toward it. Persuade yourself, as it were, uh, get a mindset where the routines are very much like what they used to be. They're familiar to you. And I take it then that gives you a certain sense of confidence and, of course, ultimately uh, what you're really going for, which is happiness. Yes. So the structure gives you a sense of control. We sort of are constantly in this doing mode and we need to give ourselves space to sort of relax and be engaged in sort of what we're doing. And oftentimes that isn't a, uh, you know, not what one would sort of prototypically view as productive, but it is essential such that you can go back and be productive. And it's interesting because this whole, you know, safer at home, stay at home orders, what it's done, it's sort of created a forced pause on our lives. And we saw, you know, our calendars basically being canceled for two months. And it's amazing that even in the, you know, these last six weeks, we went from having nothing on our calendar to all of a sudden, I feel like it's busy again. And we found ways to put meetings, you know, even though they are all, you know, on Zoom or remote meetings where we think like, oh my gosh, I don't have to travel to another person's office to have a meeting, but it still takes time But I think that the forced pause initially is a useful thing for us to realize because while there's so much anxiety, I've also heard from folks, as I've experienced it myself, is that this slowing down has actually created some really lovely moments, um, simple moments in the home that we now have the time and space to pay attention to, like you know, at the end of the day, setting the table, sitting down and having more leisurely dinner, maybe even playing a game after dinner. Whereas in the crazy, you know, normalcy of work week, we never took the time to slow down. And so I think that also the fact that commuting has been removed from our schedules and research that has tracked how people spend their days as well as how they feel over the course of their days identified commuting as the least happy activity in Americans' lives. And what this has done, well, none of us have to commute. So in this slowing down, it's almost maybe sort of putting us all into the vacation mindset, but actually at least the sort of more slow and engaged and attentive mindset. One of the things I wanted to ask about was this before we run out of time. You indicated that uh, you get to feeling more busy after a while, certainly if you're able to work at home. And I think that's absolutely true. Uh, Although you also do have the opportunity to uh, take time that you didn't have before, once again, to enjoy what you have available to you at home. How important is it to stay connected with other people, your loved ones, your colleagues? Yeah, it is supremely important. As a happiness researcher, when I'm asked what is the most important thing for happiness, it is the extent to which we feel connected and a sense of belonging. The sense of relatedness is a basic psychological need that we have. I mean, there's tons of research that shows the emotional benefits of friendship, of having positive relationships. And there are two sort of functions of that connection, right? On the one hand, it makes life more fun. It's, it's just more enjoyable when you get to share it with others. 
But what it also does is when things go bad, you have that support from others. So we also need that connection. And what's so interesting in this is that we have been forced to physically distance, but that doesn't mean we have to socially distance and we need to connect both with those that we are quarantining with, but since some folks live alone and of course we have relationships outside of our homes, we have to reach out and there are, thank goodness for technology, which sort of historically I'd be like, oh, it distracts us from our relationships, but thank gosh we have the technology we have because not only does it allow us to talk to the people and check in, but it also allows us to see those people, to share in experiences, even though we are in physically different places. All right. So Zoom and FaceTime uh, all of a sudden get very, very important. Uh, in addition, of course, to, you know, just using the telephone or texting or whatever. Is there a difference with regard to age? I think of that because, of course, younger people are, generally speaking, more adept at dealing with the technology. Yes, there is. My research speaks to the way we experience happiness shifts with age. So younger people, it tends to be more about excitement. As people get older, it's more about calm contentment. But also our happiness from extraordinary experiences, these sort of vacations, life milestones, going out to concerts and sporting events, as you can tell, none of those things are available to us right now. But then also looking at what's the effect of ordinary experiences. So these simple shared moments, going on a walk, enjoying a little treat, you know, a cold frappuccino on a hot day, a nice glass of wine. And those are things that we do have access to. And what we found in our research was actually that younger people they tend to enjoy greater happiness from the extraordinary than the ordinary. But older people, they experience as much happiness from those simple moments as they do the extraordinary ones. And the reason I want to really talk about this here is because what we found in digging into that result, that it wasn't about age per se. So I don't want younger people to be like, oh, <laughs> you know, here I am going to be unhappy because I don't have access to the extraordinary experiences. Because what we found was that it's not about age per se, it's about how much time people feel like they have left in life. And yes, that does tend to move with age. So younger people tend to view their futures as more expansive. As you get older, you tend to view your future as more limited. And with that limited, it makes your time more precious and it makes you savor those simple moments more. But there are individual differences. So some young people actually view their futures as more limited. Some older people, you know, think they're going to live forever. But it's also influenced by circumstances. And we are in a circumstance right now where mortality is highlighted to all of us, even young people, realizing that even if it's not our life that feels particularly limited and that we are realizing that life in general is. And so what that does is it actually shifts all of us, regardless of age, into older, wiser mindset, which is realizing that our time is so precious and realizing that there is a lot of happiness waiting for us in those simple, ordinary moments. And so regardless of age, we all have access to those ordinary moments. And it's so important for us to notice the good, 
that is in our life, that is in the world right now, because sure, there's a lot of bad, but we need to notice the good because that's what keeps us feeling happy. That's what keeps us motivated, optimistic, and uh, resilient. So as we wrap up, tell us how this really becomes, it seems to me, in its sort of highest form, if that's an appropriate term, a kind of meditation. Yeah. So meditation has been shown to have many benefits, um, both emotional as well as cognitive and the emotional because what meditation does, it draws your attention away from the distraction and our, what we're distracted with these days or, you know, our thoughts about what's going to come, what could happen. And of course, we can't know any of that, plan for any of that or have control over any of that. And instead, what it does is, is it draws your attention inward towards a singular thing, whether it's your breath, whether it's the present moment. And in doing that, it reduces anxiety. It makes you more attentive to the present, which is what I was saying is really important, like where the benefit of enjoying your weekend and your time off, the benefits of being present focused are extensive. And in that meditation, it reminds you to breathe. I mean, it sounds so simple, but throughout all of this, it is just important to remember to take those deep breaths such that we feel more in control. We sort of settle our mind, settle our stress levels, and we find our strengths so that we sort of can continue on in a positive way. So how do you work this into your curriculum? Uh, at the UCLA Anderson School. We've been talking about personalities and personal situations, but uh, you got to do a class in this. Yeah. So our goal at Anderson is both to give students the tools to get that job and to perform well on the job, as well as to give them the tools so that they will be successful in life, not just that first year on the job, but 10 years into their careers, 20 years into their careers. And that involves both staying motivated as well as understanding how to lead others. And so what this research and my class, it is focused on personal well-being, and that is important to understand what are those inputs for personal well-being. Again, because our students are going to be future leaders, not only in business, but in the community and society. But also they need to understand what is going to motivate their employees. And there is research that suggests that happiness job satisfaction, so happiness within one's work, and also happiness in general, life satisfaction, translates into outcomes that businesses care about. So you see that happier employees are more productive. They are more engaged in their work. They're more likely to go above and beyond for the organization as well as for their colleagues. When you have a consumer-facing brand, if you have happy employees, then that translates and gets perceived and experienced by consumers as they're interacting with those employees. You also see reduced burnout, reduced turnover, reduced absenteeism among happy employees. And so it behooves the managers and organizations to foster and cultivate the happiness of their employees. And then all of this translates and has been shown to show up in the bottom line. So you see it in profits. But my objective in the course is to inform my students to 
think about their time uh, such that they feel happier in their day-to-day, in their work weeks, as well as feel more purposeful as they are planning their careers and life uh, for decades going forward. Just wonderful to talk to you and so useful. And obviously, uh, the lesson here is that the search for happiness isn't just possible, it is essential. And that's especially true in these very troubled and difficult times. Cassie McGillner-Holmes, thank you so much for these lessons, for teaching us what you have today. Well, thank you. And I just hope that it's helpful for folks so that they can feel a little little more positive in their day-to-day. This has been the UCLA Anderson Podcast, How the World Works. I'm Warren Alney.